Last time, I was a little behind. My clock management skills weren't very good. So what I want to do is finish up the application from last time, and then we're going to move into the next section. That'll be kind of a nice bridge to the next section as well. So recall last time from Colossians 3, 8, there was this list, and actually it's from verse 5 and verse 8 of Colossians 3. And you see these sins of the flesh, immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed, anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech. We talked about all of these things are related to the old self. And I want to talk about application in our own lives. The way the Word of God works and the means of grace works in your life is if you feel convicted and say, you know what, I'm guilty of these things. You know, friends, when I studied this passage to present it to you, I was convicted of things. And that's how the Word of God works. And so the point is, is if you have some of these things in your life, we're not perfected, but we are being perfected. And so what I would recommend is get on your knees and repent and ask the Lord to help you in these endeavors, to put off the old self. And so, friends, again, realize the means of grace. One of the means is that you learn from the Word of God what you need in your life and what has to be shed. And, of course, we see these very things shouldn't be a part of a Christian's life. Now, the other thing I wanted to point out in application is kind of a broader application, and it relates off of Colossians 3.11. And remember we talked about the idea that, do you see where I have it, the circle? We already went through this passage. That's why I don't want to spend a lot of time on it. But remember the Greeks and the, and the barbarians? They are different. The Greeks are the civilized people, and the barbarians were those who were uncivilized. But what it's interesting in Colossians 3.11 in Christ Jesus, all people are one. Why? Because he's called them all out and he has made atonement for them and he has given them his righteousness. And therefore, in Christ Jesus, we only have one people. That is, no matter if you're male or female, slave nor free, nor Jew nor Gentile, we're all in Christ Jesus. So think about this. And a lot of you young people, especially if you're here or if you're listening over the internet, if you're in college, Realize in the culture today in Marxist academia, in other words, the average professor that you come across in the college today is going to be asking you to dream for and to pursue a classless and a raceless society. Are you with me? That is their dream. Now, here's the interesting thing is these are the same people who teach macroevolution. Okay? Do you see the discrepancy? Isn't it ironic? Those who want a raceless society, which is a great thing, they're the ones who are teaching macroevolution whereby some races evolve further than other races, more than likely, right? In other words, in 1936, when Jesse Owens ran the 100-meter dash and he beat all of the Germans, why was Hitler so angry? It was because of macroevolution. That person, Jesse Owens, was not too beat the supposedly superior Aryan race, okay? So ironically, they want a raceless society, but yet they don't give the means of grace that can enable that to happen. Well, let's compare that with the Word of God in the church, which is, of course, under attack by the left and our culture today. We truly are in the church, and I'm talking about the true church. Those people, the, the assembly of believers who have actually repented of their sins and trusted in Christ, we truly are in a classless and raceless society, not because we all look the same, not because we all make the same money, but because God doesn't care. Amen. He doesn't care one way or the other. He doesn't, he doesn't give one whit what color you are. You can be purple, brown, blue, white. Um, you can have five bucks or five million. All he cares is that you have faith in his son. Without faith, it's impossible to please God, it says, in Hebrews 11.6. That's all he cares about. So, friends, it's the church in the Bible that teaches that men are created in the image of God. And therefore, um, I think we need to bring this out into our society. When you're in the classroom, if you're a kid, if you're in college, and your professor is droning on about racism, show them the Bible and say the only answer to these things actually is found in the Scriptures where men are made in the image of Christ. They didn't evolve from the primordial goo to you, by the way, of the zoo. Are you, are you with me? Okay. So the final passage in this section then is Galatians 3.28. I already cited it, but um, it's a beautiful passage where Paul reiterates the oneness that we all have through faith in Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Okay. Now we're going to move on to the next section where we're going to be looking at the character of God's elect. So in Colossians 3, 12 through 13, Paul writes, he says, So as those who have been chosen of God 
holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. All right. Now, the first thing I want to look at here, friends, is the idea of chosen. Um, chosen and being called out from the world, being part of God's elect, is really the cornerstone of grace. Okay? And it's a doctrine that is election, is a doctrine that is, it just permeates the scriptures. In fact, I forget, I think it may have been Spurgeon who said it's the most comfortable chair to sit in, that is the doctrine of election. Why? Because it's everywhere. And the reason why I want to put this forward this morning is I want to talk about the idea of being chosen is essential to understanding God's grace because either at the end of the day, he chose us or we chose him. Okay. Now, what I want to do is show you, even back in the Old Testament, God is choosing a people to be his own. In Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8, listen to what the Lord says about the people of Israel. And by extension, friends, this applies to us today. He says of the Israelites, it says, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are in the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples. But why? Why did he choose them? But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers. Notice that term, set his love. It comes from kashak. And kashak literally means that he joined himself to his people. He joined himself to the people of God. And it has this idea, um, almost like a marriage when a man and a woman come together. It's this idea of joining. That's the idea of God setting his love upon his people. It's very intimate. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, that's fine. But uh, I was just, after you were done, I was going to ask. Yeah. So if, if God loved you, Israel, and that's why he chose you, does that mean God didn't love the other nations as much? And if so, why is that okay? Yeah. Yeah, well, I tell you what, let's save that to the end, because otherwise... Um, I'll, we'll end up short on time again, but it's a good question. Let me just hit it right right now at the outset. First of all, I would distinguish between loving and hatred. It, it's not the idea that, for instance, you hear the idea that God loves his children, right? You hear that idea, and the, the average assumption in the culture today is that we're all God's children. But in the scriptures, it's interesting, those who are really the children of God are those whom he's called, you see what I'm saying? In other words, he has, in one sense, yes, he loves the whole world so much so that he provided atonement. But in another sense, he loves his elect in a different way. And in a way that is, so, the type of love that he has for his elect is such that compared to the love for his elect, it's as if he hated the rest of the world. You see what I'm saying? In my opinion, Romans 9 also would indicate the idea that God has purposed uh, before the foundation of the world, that he would demonstrate his glory by the compassion and the grace that he bestows upon the elect, and also he would demonstrate his wrath and he would get on the, the reprobate, which of course are the non-elect, is everybody with me? And therefore he would uh, get glory for that. So in other words, God gets glory at the end of the day, no matter it be from his elect whom he saves or it be from the reprobate who are going to perdition. Okay. But let's come back to that because it's a, it's a lengthier discussion than that. But yeah, this this idea though of setting his love and God being united to his people, it's neat because think about in Ephesians 5 again, the imagery there of the marriage. Remember, the marriage is a symbol of what Christ and his church. In other words, the uniting of a man and a woman to, to Paul in Ephesians 5 is synonymous or points to, I should say it points to, the being joined together of Christ and his people. And it's interesting, the term that's used here, set his love, again, kashak, literally meaning being joined together. That's the intimacy with which God loves his elect. And so it's something, take this away this morning when you leave, to realize God loves you in an intimate way where he wants to be joined together with you. The other thing that I wanted to point out is, in fact, this term with the oath. You see in the last part of verse 8 there, it talks about this oath and we read about this actually in Genesis 26.3. It's, of course, talking about the oath that God gave to Abraham that the seed of the woman um, would come from him, namely the Messiah would come from Abraham. And who had Genesis 26.3? That was James. 
So you're going to read about this oath that he's referring to here. Genesis 26.3. Stay in this land, and I will be with you and bless you, for I will give all these lands to you and your descendants, and I will fulfill the solemn promise I made to your father Abraham. Yeah, and that word promise um, is the same thing as oath. And the promise was that the seed would come from Abraham. And so therefore, why is God, why has he chosen Israel? Well, it was nothing that they had done. They were not larger than anyone else. They were not more righteous. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath. So it's because God's covenant faithfulness to the oath, that's why he chose them. Well, why did God choose Abraham? Let's bring it back to Abraham then. Why did he choose Abraham? Just because he chose Abraham. See, if you keep bringing it back, Abraham wasn't any more righteous than anyone else. He took him out of Ur, the land of the Chaldeans, right? And, and so, friends, why was Paul saved on the road to Damascus? Why was he? Why didn't he go to the road to perdition? Friends, all of our lives, um, if you're in among, numbered among God's elect, it was because he chose you, because he remembered the oath that he had sworn to Abraham. So remember, friends, the idea of being chosen is foundational to the idea of God's grace. Let me move on then, and I'm just going to stay in this passage for a little bit. Notice the phrase, put on. It's interesting. It comes from endusaste, which means put on, and it's, it's like putting on again a garment. Now, let me bring you back to Colossians 3.8. Remember in Colossians 3.8, we are to put off things. Remember, we were to shed things like a garment, right? And the things that we were to put off were the anger, the wrath, the malice, and the slander, now we are to put on things like putting on garments, namely the righteous things, compassion, kindness, humility, and so forth. So let's look at a few of these. First of all, let's look at compassion. Like Tirmu, the compassion here is really synonymous with mercy, and it has to do with the idea of having within ourselves the love for our brothers and sisters where we are giving them... um, what they don't deserve. Do you know what I mean? In other words, we're giving them kindness even if they've done us wrong. We're looking out for their best interests. Okay? It's, but, of course, it's always short of the mercy that God uh, bestows upon us. But it's the same kind of idea. For instance, we see this word in Zechariah 7, 9 in the Septuagint. Larry had that one. Oh, sorry, Bob. <laughs> Poor Bob's always in the back. And then, then it'll go the other way. Yeah. <laughs> One of those, one another's, each other's verses in the Old Testament. Zechariah 7, 9. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Administer true justice, show mercy and compassion to one another. Amen. Yeah. And so it's actually the term compassion there. The compassion is the same. It's, yeah. In a new, in a new version. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. That's right. That would be the NASB, right? Yeah. And then we also see the same idea in Romans 9.15. Somebody have Romans 9.15? Romans 9.15. Yeah. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Yeah, so right there, that's God's sovereign choice right there. He will have compassion on whom he will have compassion. And because God has demonstrated this compassion upon us, and and how do you know that God has bestowed his compassion, his mercy upon you? Well, if you've repented of your sins and if you've trusted in Jesus Christ. So because he's bestowed that upon you, you are then to bestow that upon others. Are you with me? Okay. And let's, let's keep moving then. We'll go through some of the other ones here. Yeah, Keith. You're saying that we know that we're, we have been chosen because he's, we repented of our sins. In a certain way, you could also say that we know that we've been chosen because we, we also choose to reflect out of our own gratitude and our own understanding of what God's done to others. So how we act with others is also a proof of how that that happens as the next step down, right? That's exactly right. I would say you're right. Now, again, are we saved by the act of giving? And you're not saying this. I'm just throwing it out there for a possible rebuttal. Could we say that we're saved then by pouring mercy upon someone else? No. But when we pour mercy upon someone else, it's an indication of the regeneration that we have within us to say, yes, I've been forgiven much, and I also will forgive or give mercy to others. That's a bad sign. That's right. And in fact, we're going to come to forgiveness here. We'll talk about the same thing. But it's interesting here, the humility that I have listed here, this humility, 
uh, is actually contrasted with the false humility of the Colossian heretics. So remember back in Colossians 2.18 and 23. In fact, let me read the Colossians 2.18 passage. I didn't hand that out. But you'll recall then the, the false humility that the heretics had, but we're called to true humility. Let me actually back up into verse 16. So I'm in Colossians 2.16 through 18. Paul writes, he says, Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or new moon or Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in, and here's the term, self-abasement or literally false humility and the worship of the angels, taking a stand on the visions he had seen inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. So the idea is that the heretics, remember they were teaching that you had to invoke the angels to have protection from the stoichia, and they had this false sense of humility that they were doing everything that was pleasing, and the false sense of humility was this, that they were not good enough with Christ alone. Okay, And this was a false humility. What we're called to is to have a true humility where we say, yes, I'm no better than any of my brothers and sisters who have been regenerated and saved. But a false humility is one that leads to false assumptions, namely having to have uh, um, protection from the stoichia by these angels. So uh, let me keep moving on then. This passage has got a lot in it. Now we're going to talk about forgiving. And here it's karitsamanoi. And it means forgiving in the present tense. So it's interesting. Notice, friends, when you ever see an ing, forgiving, it's in the present tense. And it means ongoing and typically unceasing forgiveness. You're always going to be continually doing that. All right? And that's a, sometimes a tall order, isn't it, in our day-to-day lives, um, to be continuously Forgiving, but yet that's what we're called to, and by God's grace and His grace alone, we can accomplish it. Matthew eighteen uh, twenty one through twenty two. Did I give that passage out? Of course, in this section, Peter says, "Well, he thought he was being very generous by offering to forgive seven times." Just before you read that, it was a wide known fact that a lot of the rabbis said it, you, all you had to do was forgive three times. Okay. Well, Peter thinks he's being very generous by offering to forgive somebody seven times and then listen to what Jesus says to that. Matthew eighteen twenty one and 22. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brothers sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Wow. Yeah. So, again, don't take that as, well, it's 490 and that's it. <laughs> okay, I, you'd be missing the point. <laughs> that's right. So the point is, is unceasing forgiveness. Now, what I want to mention here is this term to whoever has a complaint against anyone. This actually indicates or implies that we will come across genuine grievances. Okay? So it's assuming that this will be the case in your life. Here's why I say that is a lot of times I say, well, yeah, I know in the Bible that I have to forgive and I have to give forgiveness like God forgave me. But then when it actually comes along that I have to forgive somebody, then I'm surprised. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, wow, this really isn't fun. (laughs) But the point is it will come along. So you you will be forgiving other people. That's what Paul's point is here. And notice it says, just as the Lord forgave you, you all... So also should you. I can't even read it that way. I don't know why they... But anyway, so also should you. So in the same way. But what's interesting now, this passage, I think, has given some on the emerging church side and the liberal left some angst. And let me just show you um, a passage or a quote from Brian McLaren. In this quote, this comes from a podcast. And in this podcast, what he is doing is he is saying that our definition of the substitutionary atonement that Christ died for our sins um, is makes God almost a liar because why would God need a substitutionary atonement in order to forgive someone? Okay, So in other words, God doesn't need... Uh, in order for him to forgive, he has to have an atonement, but yet he asks us to forgive without asking atonement. You see what I'm saying? And so what he's saying is, well, then God is worse than you and I are. All right, that's the idea. And what I'm going to show you is really a form of idolatry because what McLaren is doing here is he's making God like man. 
He's making God in the image of man. So let me just show you the quote. It'll make sense, okay? Now, this was from a podcast with Leif Hansen, and McLaren is quoting somebody, and it's, it's a, not a complete quote word for word, but he likes this man's ideas, and so this is McLaren's very idea himself. He says, The traditional understanding that is of the atonement and forgiveness says that God asks of us something that God is incapable of himself. God asks us to forgive people, but God is incapable of forgiving. God can't forgive unless he punishes somebody in place of the person he was going to forgive. God doesn't say things to you, forgive your wife and then go kick the dog to vent your anger. God asks you to actually forgive. And there's a certain sense that a common understanding of the atonement, remember that it would be uh, the substitutionary atonement, Christ taking upon the sins that you and I deserve. He says the understanding of the atonement presents a God who is incapable of forgiving unless he kicks somebody else. Now, this Leif Hansen, he applauded Brian and he thought, wow, this is so profound. But all Brian McLaren is doing, friends, is he is making God in the image of man. Let me just show you, I want to unpack and clarify McLaren's confusion. And in order to do so, I want to talk about the character of God a moment. And I want to look at uh, Psalm 89. Let's look at God's character and show that, in fact, McLaren is engaging in equivocation where he's making God like man. In Psalm 89:14, David writes of the Lord, he says, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Loving kindness and truth go before you. Uh, notice the term righteousness. I think it's, yeah, it's sadak. Righteousness and justice. Justice is mishpat. Okay, use that three times and you own it. All right, mishpat. The reason why I like mishpat is because if you know mishpat, then you'll know the judge, because judge is made into, out of that word, shofet. So if you know shofet, mishpat, it kind of sounds like, you see what I'm saying? So if you're a judge, a judge is a shofet, and mishpat is justice. But here's the neat thing here. The idea is that righteousness and justice form the foundation of the throne of God. In other words, they are integral to his character. That's who he is. He is completely righteous and completely just. And therefore, he must punish sin. This isn't an option. He must punish sin. And that's why, notice the loving kindness that's also there. That is the means by which you and I are saved. That is his cassette. That is his covenant love that he's bestowed upon the elect. Okay, so now let me put it together for you. Because God is just, that's part of his character, he must punish sin. But because of his cassette that he pours upon the elect, his love, he wants to save them. And that's why in Romans 3.26 God is both what? He's both the just, the one who demands, and the justifier, right? He's both the just and the justifier. He's the one who demands justice. It must be paid. That's why Christ had to come and bring the atonement. Because if God did not accept that atonement, in other words, if he did not get that payment, then he would be unjust. Payment had to be made for the sake of the elect. Are you with me? So, now, hold on to that idea, and let's go to Malachi 3.6. And here you're going to see, and I'm, I'm using this passage to just to show you that God's character does not change. For I, Yahweh, do not change. Therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. Ironically, this passage is saying that Jacob, that is Israel, isn't consumed, and you can actually bring that back to God's cassette, his covenant love, Right? Because of God's covenant love, and he doesn't change, because of the oath that he swore to Abraham, these people won't be wiped out. That is his elect. And the same thing applies to you and me. Because of God's cassette that he placed upon us, we won't be wiped out. Okay, He doesn't change. Even though we're faithless, he remains faithful. That's exciting. However, the idea of him not changing also applies to his justice and his holiness, and his righteousness. It must be maintained. And that's why McLaren is confused, because, see, God is not like a man where he can just wink at sin. I remember R.C. Sproul, he gave a lecture about um, talking about God having to um, lash out and punish sin. And he studied in the Netherlands. Does everybody know R.C. Sproul fairly well? Well, R.C. Sproul, he was trying to understand the people of the Netherlands and some of their idiomatic expressions. Instead of saying they winked at sin, they used the expression, they were, the, the professor in R.C. Sproul's class says, God does not look through his fingers at sin. 
And R.C., it's so funny because he was sitting there trying to figure out what in the world does that mean? God does not look at fingers. But the point is, it's like a child who pretends something really isn't there. That's what he finally figured out. And the idea that this professor in the Netherlands was trying to say is that God can't pretend that your sin isn't there. It really is, and therefore he must punish it. And that's why we had to have the substitutionary atonement paid for by Christ. So what McLaren is engaged in is he is, in fact, making God in the image of man. What is man? Well, this is what man is like, Romans three ten through 12. Instead of us being righteous, it says there is none righteous, not even one. Let me just stop there. If there is none righteous, not one of us, then why would you and I require a payment? Why would you and I have to go, as McLaren says, kick the dog? I'm already unrighteous anyway. If you do something unrighteous to me, you're just like me. Why do I need atonement? Are you with me? Why do I need a payment? I'm not completely just. I'm not completely righteousness. I'm just like you. That's why God can ask us to do something that he won't do himself. Are you with me? Yeah. Keith. In looking at the the concept of forgiveness, what we had in the previous slide is that because he forgave us, that's the power for us to forgive. So our forgiving, extending forgiveness to others, we have that power because of an atonement. So all that's forgiveness right. that's properly based is based on the atonement. God's to me and me to God. Yeah. McLaren's is someone, there's a book out I picked up at the airport I found fascinating. It's called The Power of Forgiveness okay. by the Dalai Lama. <laughs> okay. And I, I was, well, that's interesting. Yeah. And what the Dalai Lama's basic supposition for forgiveness is we Buddhists are seeking happiness. Mm. And I have constructed a worldview where unforgiveness is causing me pain mm. and me unhappiness, so therefore I forgive out of hedonism. Sure, right. And somewhat, it's somewhat the same of, of uh, McLaren, that he's forgiving out of his own hedonism because I right. choose, I think that's better for me. And it's a totally an antithetical to what God's saying. That's Instead right. of us having the power to forgive and, and extending it yeah. because we're little masters, we just That's extend, right. a Christian extends power to forgive because he's been forgiven. It's two diametrically opposed concepts. Amen. Yeah, he's trying to do it by his works. God has promised that we'll be able to do it by grace. Amen. That's a very important point. Yeah, so let me let me finish reading this passage, and then I'm just going to have us read uh, Romans one twenty two through 23. So now, again, this is about man. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. So, of course, that is a very condemning accusation, and it is true against mankind. So, therefore, friends, when God asks us to forgive, and we say, like McLaren, well, why am I asked when God won't do it without atonement? Of course, the the point is, is God is holy, just, and righteous, and we're not. So what McLaren has done, what's so egregious about that quote to me, is he has made God in the image of man. And that's exactly what Paul had warned about in Romans one twenty-two through 23. Did I give that passage out? Oh, yeah, here he is. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Yeah, that's exactly... So, That's exactly what McLaren is doing. He's taking the immortal God and he's making him into the image of a mortal man. That's what's going on here. And what's so sad is a lot of the emergence and the other Christians, or I mean, I put that in quotes, they call themselves Christians, they're not able to detect that. And it's a devaluing and it's a sleight of hand. And the worst of all, it's idolatry against God. It's making God to be something less than he really is. Um, Yeah, Patrick. Say so, if the basis for Christians forgiving those who wrong them is their own forgiveness, um, and in humility we we extend that forgiveness to others, should that does that mean that we should for unbelievers we should not urge them to ever forgive because they have no basis to forgive others? Um, I I wouldn't necessarily say that. Um, It's just that realize when they go. I mean, there's an oughtness. To society, they ought not to kill. They ought not to um, rob banks, even though they're unbelievers. Um, it's just that at the end of the day, they're powerless to really do anything about it. Do you know what I mean? In other words, it's it's their own, um, as Keith phrased it, it's their own hedonism, their own um, ability, really, that would allow them to do it. Hedonism would indicate it's their own pleasure. But the point is, if you really think about it, 
um, unbelievers, they don't find any pleasure in giving forgiveness. Are you with me? The point being is if if an unbeliever would offer forgiveness, it would be on his own power and his own strength, and it would be rare. Um, So think about a society where you have a, a large portion of the society is comprised of regenerate believers. You're going to find a politer society. You're going to find a society that doesn't run each other off the road in road rage, typically, right? Um, A society that is comprised primarily of unregenerate, you can see the effects of that. Um, The old saying is, if you saw two guys in the alley coming at you at night, wouldn't wouldn't you be relieved if you saw that they'd come from a Bible study? You see what I'm saying? And the the point being is, um, so even the culture is affected by by these ideas of grace. So the point is, is we hold unbelievers to the same standard because God's standard does not falter. Um, it's immoral not to, uh, to forgive. It's immoral to murder. It's immoral, to, it's immoral to do all these things. However, they're, at the end of the day, powerless. They don't have the Holy Spirit to accomplish these things. So I hope that helps. Yeah. Anybody got else? any thoughts? Mike's got a thought in there. Bob always talks about uh, costly love and... Uh, yeah. Uh, when he's talking about the Middle Eastern cultures. And I think sometimes we uh, forget that true love and true forgiveness has a cost. And when you see McLaren writing things like this, he doesn't understand that there's a cost to forgiveness. Um, I knew a man uh, that uh, co-signed for uh, a friend of his on a car and the and the friend was uh, never never made the payments, and um, so this man uh, uh, paid the car off uh, for him, and uh, and then continued to be his friend. And uh, you know they, they they've been friends since kids, and he continued to be his friend. And um, I couldn't understand, you know, man, how, how can you be his friend when he? Just took you for this large chunk of money. Sure. Um, but uh, he valued the friendship more than the money, mm. and he uh, assumed the cost and absorbed the the punishment. And I think um, mm. really displayed uh, costly love. In other mm. words, it wasn't it wasn't just a feel good thing, and it wasn't just mutual benefit. Yeah. It was, um, you know, I'm, I'm a suffering for yeah. my friend. Yeah. And when Jesus says uh, no greater love than this, uh, you know, than to lay down one's life for his friend, yeah. uh, we see real costs there and yeah. we see real love. And McLaren seems to be talking about cheap love, cheap mm-hmm. forgiveness, uh, just you know, uh, nothing that really costs him anything. Yeah. So, and, and apparently he thinks it, it doesn't cost God anything either right. to uh, provide an atonement. You know, yeah. it's, he provides the atonement. We don't provide anything. So. Yeah, that's a really good point. As you were saying that, I thought too of honor. You know, um, when we sin, and every single person has, God's honor is at stake. When somebody sins and wrongs us, our honor is at stake. Well, what's my honor compared to God's? And that's the whole point, is a shameful people, uh, when their honor is assaulted, it's not nearly what it is when a holy, righteous, and just God, his honor is assaulted. So you're right, it's very costly for him to forgive. In fact, so much so that it cost his own son. So well said, Mike. With that, I'll keep moving on here. We see love and peace in Christ here. Colossians 3, 14 through 15, it says, Beyond all these things, put on love which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Uh, First thing I want you to notice is this phrase here, put on, isn't actually there. That's why I have it italicized. You can see it in your New American Standard Bible, but it's implied, and it's implied because it comes from the previous uh, verses, verse 12, where it said put on. So it's an extension of that. Verse 12, remember, said put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And then verse 13, it was uh, bearing with one another, forgiving, and so forth. So it's implied. But what's interesting here is literally if you were to read it, it would be, let me show you a little rendering of this. It's it's just an interesting phrase. This is how a scholar interpreted it. And in the Greek, it's epipasin de tutois. 
And this epi is upon or on top. Pasin is all. This day is what's called post-positive. It's but. And that should be thrown forward. So it would literally be but upon all these things. And the scholar rendered it this way. He says, on top of all the other articles of clothing. So I love that because it's the idea is we're putting all this clothing on. Remember, we shed off the old clothing because we became regenerate. And so we shed off the old clothing of sin. Now we're putting on the new clothing of righteousness. And the one article of clothing that has to be on top is love. That's kind of the idea. And I thought, wow, that's a... That's pretty good. No wonder the guy's a scholar. <laughs> you know what I mean? That was good. So anyway, that's one way of looking at it, and I think that's probably a good way of thinking of it. So now, let me move on, and I'm just going to keep picking apart this verse a little bit. I want to talk about this idea of love. And love in the Scriptures, we typically see two kinds. Uh, there's agape and philia. And what's interesting is this has to do, they're used synonymously, typically. Okay. Now let me just do a little teaching here on, on hermeneutics. When you come to nouns like that have to do with love, for instance, in this example, there's what's called a semantic range. And that means that both of these terms can use, be used interchangeably. Um, a semantic range has to do with how a term can be used. And oftentimes, you'll see terms that have overlapping semantic ranges, if you know what I'm saying. Okay? So typically, what you'll see throughout the Bible is that these two terms are used interchangeably, agape and philia. Okay, these are the nouns. However, there's one exception to that, and it's actually kind of interesting. And I got it from Daniel Wallace, and I was reading his, his grammar book, and I want to show it to you so you can put it in your pocket and just think about this, how it applies. It actually applies to a different passage, but I just want to talk about this idea of love. I want to kind of drill down on it a little bit. Listen to what Wallace here says about Revelation 3:19 through 20. And remember, this is about the church at Laodicea. Well, here, let me just read what he says here, and I'll explain why it's significant. This is the passage, Revelation 3.19. It says, Those whom I love I reprove and discipline. And then, now, that was the passage. Now, here goes Daniel Wallace. It says, Here phileo is used for love, a term never used of God or Jesus loving unbelievers in the New Testament. That's significant. God is never pictured in the entire New Testament. And, and by the way, I didn't believe him. <laughs> I mean, not that, he's a great scholar. I just I wanted to make sure he was right. It just, and I, I went through my logos, and it, it, he's right. It's never used of God's love for unbelievers. So now he continues. It says, Indeed, it would be impossible for God to have this kind of love for an unbeliever, for it routinely speaks of enjoyment and fellowship. Agapao, remember these are the verb forms of the nouns, is the verb used of God's love for unbelievers. Why is that significant in this passage? Just turn with me real quick to Revelation chapter 3. And in verse 20, Revelation 3.20, this is why it's significant. Verse 20, it says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. Uh, Many people have interpreted this passage as indicating it's a potential offer of salvation. In other words, God is offering salvation. He's outside knocking on the door. If you'll open the door, he'll come in. Well, what's interesting is what Daniel Wallace is saying here is that that love, this is never used for unbelievers. Therefore, this passage can't be a reference to unbelievers. So therefore, the knocking outside of whose door? it's, It's a believer's door. You see, this isn't an offer of salvation. This is an offer of fellowship. The Laodiceans had kicked, ironically, God out of their fellowship. Okay? That's not a good idea. Bob talks about often table fellowship and the idea of, uh, in fact, it culminates in the marriage supper of the Lamb. One day we will have ultimate table fellowship with him. So the ironic thing was the Laodiceans, they had gotten so far away from Christ that they'd forgotten even table fellowship with him, and Christ is on the outside door knocking, saying, hey, what about me? Okay? But it's not an offer to salvation. That's the point. Okay. Now, let's come back to our passage. The love that is being demonstrated that we're asked for is agape. But again, agape typically is unconditional love, but it can be used interchangeably with philia. So anyway, I just wanted you to see that distinction. This is the only time really in the Bible, that is when God is loving people, that you'll see a distinction between philia and agape. Are you with me? Yeah. Keith. So those two kinds of love parallel the concept of election. Yeah, yeah, that's well said. Yeah, you have the reprobate and the regenerate, yeah. And the right, God agape is all, but he filios only some. Yeah, yeah, well said, yeah. So let me clarify. So in John 3.16, for God so loved the world, that's the agapao. Are you with me? That's 
So God unconditionally loves the whole world in one sense, but to you, you who are his chosen ones, he phileos you. And it's a difference between agape is unconditional. Yes, there is in some sense God has love for every single person. However, that doesn't mean they're justified. We know the rain falls on the just and the unjust. Okay, And because God doesn't wipe out every single sinner instantaneously, he's demonstrating love towards them, is he not? But when it comes to his love of you, because he's called you out, he loves you as a family member. You are a son and daughter, and so it's this idea of family love. He loves you differently now than he loves any, the, the unregenerate in the world. Are you with me? And, and to me, that's a beautiful picture. So anyway, let's not beat a dead horse too much here, but that's what it's about. Okay, now, interesting, true knowledge leads to this love. And notice this phrase here, which the love is a perfect bond of unity. And this term unity actually comes, we get our um, term telos, the teleological argument from this. Um, Tilia tetas, it means unity or has to do with the state of completion or perfection. In other words, if we are in fact going to be in a perfect union with one another, love is the bond that will enable that to happen. Now, I'm going to talk about the relationship of love and knowledge here in a minute because what you'll see is this challenge that you'll have. For instance, I've, I've actually been given this challenge in a seminary where a liberal came up to me. It was a liberal Christian that I knew there. And he says, you know, you evangelicals, you focus on knowledge, but knowledge puffs up. And he said, we focus on love. Okay? And let me just show you the passage where he gathers that from. Then I want to show you the relationship between love and knowledge, and then hopefully we'll... Yeah, that should, I think we have enough time for this. Okay, let me show you where they get this passage. This is the proof text for those who believe that you and I as evangelicals are too focused on knowledge. That just puffs up, but they focus on love, and that's what we should just be focused on exclusively. 1 Corinthians 8, 1 through 3, this is where Paul says, Now concerning things sacrificed to idols. So he's dealing with the idol uh, eating meat that were sacrificed to idols. He says, We know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant... But love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he is not yet known um, as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. So here's the point is what they're trying to point out is if you have knowledge, that just puffs up and that's worthless. Okay? And so what they're going to do is they're going to love. And that's all they're going to do. So um, don't tell them about doctrine. Don't teach them the word of God. They're just going to love. And they're going to love themselves right into the kingdom, right? Love, 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 okay? Well, now, what I want to do is I want to talk about this passage and how they've misunderstood it. And I'm glad that Bob actually taught in 1 Corinthians 8 because this passage, there's a lot connected to this. But let me just say this. I think the context is this. Paul is concerned that there's two types of Christians. There's the strong and there's the weak, Okay, And the strong Christians, they knew that the meat sacrificed to idols, it was accounted to nothing. In other words, it didn't matter. Um, There was no magical property or evil property to the meat merely because it was offered to an idol. Are you with me? But the weaker Christians who had just come out of that paganism, that polytheism, they didn't know it. But what was happening is the stronger Christians kind of said, well, you know what, these guys are just too dumb to get it. And so they said, we'll eat it anyway, and they were making their weaker brothers stumble. So the point is, what Paul is getting at is, if they really knew as they ought to know, then they would forsake their Christian liberty for the sake of their weaker brother. Okay, And that's why, notice the last part of verse 3, it says, but if anyone loves God, he is known by him. The idea is, if you love, then you really have knowledge, and the idea is that you're known by God. In other words, you're one of his, you're the elect. And there you have true knowledge. So here's the point. It's not that love and knowledge are opposed to one another. It's that if you really know, if you have true doctrine, it leads you to love. That's the idea. So no one can claim to have true doctrine and true knowledge if they don't love. That's the idea. Because then you don't really understand. That's the whole point that Paul's making. So they're not opposed to one another. In fact, they're linked together. Okay, now let me just show you a passage. This is our application for today. And I want to read this. I want to read a passage out of 1 Peter and then we'll take, or 2 Peter, and then we'll take questions and comments. Here's the application, I think. It says, True knowledge leads us to love God and our brothers and sisters. There's the idea of loving God vertically 
and then therefore loving our brothers and sisters, loving one another. And there is no contradiction between knowledge and love. Again, if we truly have our doctrine right, we're going to love one another. If we truly have our doctrine right, we're going to love God. And no one can claim to have true doctrine if they hate God and hate their brothers and sisters. That's the idea. Now let me show you a passage which links love and knowledge out of Second Peter 1, verse 5. Peter writes this. He says, Now for this reason also applying all diligence in your faith supply moral excellence and in moral excellence knowledge and in knowledge self-control and in self-control perseverance and in perseverance godliness and in godliness brotherly kindness and in brotherly kindness love. The idea, friends, here is in the list of things that we should add to ourselves, you find both knowledge and love. So it's not either or, it's that true knowledge leads to love. Is that clear? Okay. With that, I will quit yapping, and you guys are free to ask questions or give comments. Larry's got one. You know, it's interesting that you talk about uh, Mr. McLaren. Yeah. And uh, I was watching uh, Glenn Beck the other day, and not that it, what he says is applying here, but it's the understanding yeah. because... Instead of liberal theology, I would call it progressive theology because they progress beyond the foundations of what is taught in the Bible. Mm. And uh, it kind of gets into a little bit of trajectory hermeneutics, mm. where, in other words, they keep adding on to it or eventually it'll get to where their line of thinking is. But yeah. if true Christianity was taught, probably the emergent church would have never happened. Yeah, well said. I'm just trying to digest all that. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Let me just pick up on one thing that you said there. Bob, think about this. Remember the trajectory hermeneutics that you had mentioned? Uh-huh. The, the emerging church is big on that. And is everybody aware of what is meant by trajectory hermeneutics? It's the idea that we're not bound by what the scriptures actually say. It's the direction they're pointing. So it's the idea that you can kind of add to them. Yeah, it's like living, living, breathing. Exactly. Yeah, I heard one when I was out at the emergent conference, and this came from that Jurgen Moltmann. Yeah. And so then he, they claim that the Bible's full of contradictions. Yeah. Okay. So the way he resolved the contradiction, according to Moltmann and his emergent followers, yeah. is whatever, if, if, if you see a verse that says this and a verse that says the opposite, yeah. according to them, choose the one that's more like Jesus. So oh. they sort of have a romantic, romanticized idea about what Jesus is like. Okay. And so then, you think in your mind what you think Jesus is like, and then you interpret whatever verse you want to based on your own concept of Jesus. Mm. And and I've heard that when I was in the Methodist church, which was liberal in my youth, is, well, the Jesus I know wouldn't do that. Oh, wow. <laughs> well, in other words, you have a romantic idea that Jesus is this and that, so taking a whip and driving the money changers out of the temple may not fit with your romantic idea of mm. Jesus. But what we would conclude is that what we know about the person and work of Christ is revealed in the Scripture properly interpreted according to the norms of language, historical, grammatical uh, method of interpretation, and not just a romantic idea that Jesus, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, or whatever is the only thing we know. That's right. And if there's an apparent contradiction in the Scripture, it's because we don't understand one of the passages. Well, most of these contradictions aren't really contradictions. Exactly, there are no contradictions. In fact, I don't think there are any. That's right. Okay, and if there's one that we can't figure out, just be patient. And That's exactly right. And I make a distinction. I know R.C. Sproul does this. The difference between a paradox and a contradiction, a paradox is an apparent contradiction. At the outset, it looks like it's contradictory, but on closer examination, it clears up. That's what we have in the Scriptures. We have no true contradictions. Okay, um, yeah, we had a couple over here. I'm sorry, Patrick's going, and we'll be over there. You talked about loving and having compassion for our brothers and sisters. Yeah. And do you mean that specifically, that that we have that love and compassion for other Christians, or do you mean that in terms of all humans? Um, First and foremost, for brothers and sisters, but by extension to all people. The reason why I say this is because Christ and John... In the book of John, I think it's um, John 17, he talks about the world would know who we are if we love one another, okay? And so it doesn't preclude us from loving the world as well. But um, what I would say is there's a special love we have for one another. You know what I mean? 
There's uh, a I, sweetness, yeah. You know, the same thing applies to God. God has a yeah. special love for his own children. Exactly. But he has a general love for all humanity. That's right. And That's we can sweet. easily understand that. Uh, we love our children, okay? Yeah. So we live in a neighborhood and our kids are running around in the yard. Yeah. Well, we really love them, and we'll do anything for them. It doesn't mean we hate the neighbor's kids. Right, right. Okay? Right, exactly. <laughs> we may love the neighbor's kids, but it's a little bit of a different order. Okay? Right. All right. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's a good analogy. Oh, yeah, we had one more over there. Real quick, I'm a visitor. I noticed that a lot of people that aren't real close to God seem to focus a lot on God's judgment and punishment. And it's in my belief that if you're really focused on punishment and judgment, those who are so concerned about it probably have a real good reason to be concerned about it. (laughs) But um, they're so concerned about judgment now, a lot of people don't want to hear about God because all they think about is judgment. They don't want to be judged. Well, they don't want to be judged, but they have no problem with judging other people. Sure, sure. <laughs> and it's just, it's saddening that people are so concerned about the judgment. Okay. There's so much more to God than the judgment. Right. That, you know, it's just, <laughs> we're all going to be judged eventually. But. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, let, let me just make a few. I, I would um, let me just clarify my, some of my thoughts on it. I, I think we should be concerned about God's judgment, and that's not to dismiss um, some of what you said. But we should be concerned about the judgment of God because God's wrath does abide upon uh, people. The primary problem that people have in this world is that the wrath of God is abiding upon them, and that's why they are, we should, in fact, flee to salvation through Christ. Now. Focusing exclusively on God's wrath, yes, obviously, you know, God loves, he loves us in that he, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So we have to emphasize that. But the point, um, the point being is I just want to make sure um, that it's stated here that being afraid of the wrath of God is a very good thing. And that's, in fact, what we're called to. So um, if I were to say what the world is focused on is that God loves them to the extent where he will not judge them. That is what the average sinner believes because they think they have an inflated value of their own, their own lovableness, if you will, right? And they say, well, God would never judge me. I'm, I'm this, I'm that. Well, God will judge them. In fact, Isaiah 13 says God will judge all those who have done wickedly. Now, the other, one other item is, remember, there's a distinction in God's judgment. There's the Bema seat judgment, that is the judgment seat of Christ, where God will be rewarding believers for what's done in the flesh. But then there's the white throne judgment that is exclusively for those who are lost. And we see that, for instance, in Revelation chapter 20, where only those who never trusted in Christ are going to be judged. And there is no option of heaven or hell. It's just how bad will hell be for them. So the believer's judgment is how um, heaven, what heaven will be like. And to the unregenerate, the unbelievers, the judgment is purely what hell will be like for them. And so, therefore, God's judgment is a, a, an obvious concern. Yeah, we're out of time. Sorry. Well, anyway, but, but thanks for your comments. Yeah, thank you. And blessings. Um, we'll go upstairs and we'll greet one another here, and we'll see you all back next Sunday.